Welcome to Pathways to Power podcast, episode three, how to support localization. I'm Terry Gibson, and I've been linking up with people in twos and threes on Skype and in phone calls. Conversations have spanned continents, linking people working at the front line of development and humanitarian response with others who draw alongside them. Episode one concluded that localization needs to be more than a buzzword. Its relevance in practice depends on engaging with grassroots situations which it's intended to improve. Episode 2 found that localization isn't about simply shifting more money to fund short-term projects. It starts from building institutions for sustainable change. Local communities and organizations play a key role in this as they understand the needs, priorities and barriers. This episode asks what is involved in unleashing this power and potential and how other elements of the industry can help. We've come across various buzzwords in our journey so far. And here's another, capacity. All the time we talk about capacity, no? that local organizations do not have enough capacity. Uh, that's why we need to uh, work on their behalf or we can't pass on their funding. And I successfully challenged that. I said, if they don't have capacity, then do you have the capacity to go uh, within no time on ground and unfold a humanitarian response? You can't. So capacity, I broadly categorize into two, response capacity and compliance capacity. It's Local organizations are ex- extremely good on response, and that's the capacity we require. If they don't write smart objectives or log frame, that doesn't kill anyone. But if they are not prompt on ground, that will kill people. No? So the response capacity should be acknowledged as much as you uh, uh, acknowledge compliance capacity. Compliance is required for mobilizing funds, for being accountable and answerable. But that that should not supersede response capacity and that's why you need complementarity, partnership. If they don't write smart objectives or log frames, that's not going to kill anyone. So don't use talking about the volume of paperwork that people have to complete to do with compliance. I really like his distinction between the two kinds of capacity, response capacity and compliance capacity. Both are important, but in practice, compliance capacity trumps response capacity. And that leads to an emphasis on organisations who are able to do all the paperwork. Not every organisation has the capacity or ability to be able to comply with absolutely every requirement that donors are currently asking for. And that's why a lot of resources are still very much um, contained and managed with a very small group of organisations around the world. It becomes difficult to really move away from that. It's difficult to find new partners, to find new organizations that are doing different things. We need to focus on is the complementarity. So understanding what the added value of each partner is, and if possible, though quite difficult, from the view of what what do what is local capacity and how can INGOs gap fill rather than the other way around. And so really it you know it might be the case that international NGO staff still come on with come in with technical expertise in in uh, wash or in camp management or whatever that might be but it doesn't mean that they have to lead that response or be the only ones working on that response so i think it's a lot more about complementarity than we are currently able to as a sector to work out it seems 
Rossio from Accountable Now and then Liz from Christian Aid both sit on the large organisation side of the industry and they can see the problems that are created by failing to recognise local organisations as partners and failing to recognise the capacities they bring. Shane also sits within a large organisation, the International Rescue Committee. There is already a, a in any context we work in, there is already a local system responding to um, the crisis. Um, in some places it may engage local government actors, others like civil society actors might, be, might play a more prevalent role, sometimes it's the private sector. Um, but understanding that, that, that as the starting point and approaching it with you know, asking the question, you know, how can we support existing efforts rather than engaging in context with an assumption that A, that um, ignores the local, existing local response to the crisis and B, with an assumption that we can generally deliver best outcomes when we deliver services directly. You might think that what Shane says is just common sense, starting with the detailed knowledge and experience that local organisations and people have is the best starting point for effective action. And yet it remains the case that people just don't get that, as Kailash illustrates in his experience in Nepal. Many people uh, came not to respond but to learn. So it is very interesting. We, we, we observe that. Uh, in, 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 some, in some cases, uh, the contextualization of the uh, of the of the knowledge is very important. Or some someone who who might be very much experienced in the Central Asian context or African context uh, might not be an appropriate human resource for 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 making response in 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 Nepalese hills or Nepalese Tarai. Kailash highlights the irony of external staff coming in and having to learn rather than act because they don't appreciate the detailed and specific context of the Nepalese highlands and lowlands. But this is a brilliant illustration of the kind of imbalance between the weight put on external expertise from funders and large organisations and the value of the experience and expertise of local organisations. Sitting behind this inevitably is the problem of money. The person who holds the purse strings also holds the power. One of the things that uh, angels and donors, uh, and, and especially in a localization context, it has been really difficult because uh, whenever there is funding, it is only about the relief materials and, and some of the immediate responses. However, the institutional capacity building of the local level organization um, and, um, the, and some of the very important policy strategies, having an access to government, which actually angels and donors can work as a mediator to, uh, for, for the local level organization to, and support them to be part of the larger humanitarian system because and and really uh, so this is this is something that uh, that is really lacking Sumira, like Kailash, works in Nepal and is frustrated by the insistence on short-term funding rather than longer-term flexible funding to build institutions Sam understands this very well as her organisation draws very close to small local organisations and she can see how they really need long-term flexible support these local organizations have the trust of their communities, understand the, the you know, let's say the, the cycles of disasters that will happen and impact of their community, but they don't have access to the goods and services and they may not even have the knowledge of how to um, effectively implement the direct response. And yet 
they continue to find themselves on the front lines year after year. You know, building capacity is not something we like to use because it's patronizing in and of itself, but how do we help them and support them in order to be able to respond to these crises that are happening year after year in their communities? Like being sustainable is obviously, every funder wants to fund organizations that want that want to be sustainable, but then ultimately they're funding in an unsustainable way. So I mean, how can you possibly expect an organization with that aspiration to achieve if you're not giving them some flexible funding or some unrestricted funding or, or like specific seed funding for growing a an income generating activity or whatever it might be um, and doing that almost like as part of the standard way of giving grants. Rachel works for an organisation, Global Giving, which was founded to develop alternative funding models which provide this kind of flexible funding and seed funding to help organisations develop and grow and work effectively for sustainable development. But Sidanchu, who left Geneva to found a local Indian organisation, says... Too often, large funding organisations lack the flexibility to reach out to the local level and provide the kind of support that would really lead to progress. Even big donors say that they don't have capacity. When I was in Geneva in this June for ECOSOG, uh, I was in a group discussion and in my group, uh, the biggest donors were present like USAID, DFID, JICA, uh, etc., and all of them said, we don't have capacity to manage multiple partnerships with local organizations. I said, you don't have capacity. Local organizations don't have capacity. Who suffers in this process? Both have, both don't have capacity. But sufferer is local organization <laughs> because of your lack of capacity. Largely, power still lies with those that have funds. And we know that it is much more difficult for local actors to access funds directly. So they do rely on in many cases they rely on international agencies to enable and facilitate them to be able to respond in their own communities I mean I can't imagine how frustrating it must be right (laughs) but it's the way the system is currently and I I don't think it's going to change I don't think there'll be transformational change in relation to that I can see why Sedantu and Liz both chuckle the whole situation seems a bit topsy-turvy. Large funding agencies aren't able to connect up with local organisations. Local organisations aren't able to get the resources they need to do the things they know how to do well. It's telling that Melvin's organisation has to pick and choose carefully who it partners up with for funding to avoid being tangled up by the strings sometimes attached. From the word go, we've been very careful in the partnerships that we've, we've onboarded. Not to say that we've not burnt our fingers before, but we, we are very in, intentional in the partnerships that we, that, that we sort of uh, come into. Well, we found that there's a lot of resistance on an alignment. We've shied away from taking those resources. And, and we've suffered for that. And the problem, with again, with the international donors, they're not used to rejection. It's telling that Melvin's organisation have to be selective about which funding they accept because of the constraints some of that funding puts on them. Is there any prospect of change? Shane and Rossio think there might be. Uh, One of the key tools that we have is shifting donor strategies where we've seen that um, our major donors, um, um, OFTA, USAID, DFID, ECHO and the like, in the recent 12 to 18 months in particular, the rubber is really starting to hit the road. And at the end of the day, that's you know, that's where much of the power lies for the always. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's urgent for journals and the UN system as well to come together with 
other international actors like IRC and to design an approach that that really disrupts the existing power structures that starts with local the local response, the communities that are attacked by the action and the local actors. There are some donors, I think particularly private foundations, who have started changing the way that they're operating in the sense that they're not giving out um, one-year project grants. They're really focusing more on investing in an organization strategy which that in itself gives you, right, as an organization, a huge margin um, of possibilities to to test out, to, you know, to roll out different types of approaches. But that's not necessarily the case everywhere. And 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 the vast majority of resources, I, I would dare say, they're really not in the hands of private foundations. They're really more with bilaterals and of course, there you also have other considerations, which we're talking about taxpayers' money, and it becomes different. We asked how to support localization, whether it's to do with knowledge, practical support, capacity building, or providing resources. The answer from everyone we've listened to seems clear. It's a matter of partnerships rather than imposing power. It's a kind of 50-50 relationship. Let's listen to Stuart, who works in rural Zimbabwe at the front line. Donors should view communities as equal partners. Yeah, yeah, they actually, they, they should understand that they are bringing half set of, you know, instructions, the same applies to the what to the communities. And most probably, if, if we sort of like um, try and evaluate, and evaluate the contribution that the communities will put in, <coughs> in any of the projects, you'll find that probably it's, it's 50-50. So then what we are saying now is, we, we want the donors who really sort of like value our systems, value our norms, and they, they view us as, as equal partners, as recipients, because we are already doing something. And again, the other issue that um, the, the donors should really support that the projects that communities are already doing, not to bring, you know, new issues, new ideas, you know, just build on what the communities are already doing. Yeah. Then you find that those projects, they become sustainable. Simple, really. And yet change seems really difficult. In the final episode of this podcast series, we'll turn the spotlight onto donors and INGOs and ask what it is that makes it so difficult for them to change their approach. You'll find the other episodes and much more information, including details on all the contributors, by googling Global Fund for Community Foundations Pathways to Power, where you're also very welcome to contribute your own comments and join in the conversations. And finally, my thanks to the contributors to this episode, Sudanchu, Rossio, Liz, Shane, Kailash, Sumira, Sam, Rachel, Melvin and Stuart. <laughs>